We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. afternoon and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to see your true self in the midst of life's twists and turns. You'll be challenged to think outside of the box when it comes to the mysteries of life. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Hi, and welcome to the Authentic Living Show. We're so lucky today to have Roseanne Cash come to the Authentic Living Show to discuss her latest book, Composed and Memoir the powerful, poetic, and poignant story of her own inner journey, which touches its readers at a deep, essential, and spiritual core. Roseanne is one of America's preeminent singers and songwriters with 14 albums and 11 number one singles to her credit. Her albums, which reach people from across the various music genres, include Right or Wrong, Seven Year Ache, Somewhere in the Stars, Rhythm and Romance, King's Record Shop, Interiors, The Wheel, Ten Song Demo, Rules of Travel, Black Cadillac, and recently The List, which is an album of songs selected from a list of 100 songs given to her by her father, Johnny Cash, when she was 18 years old, and The Essential Roseanne Cash, a compilation of songs personally created by Roseanne over the span of her career thus far. First known as the daughter of Johnny Cash, she moved on to find and live into her own genuine perspective, talent, and personality as she created song after song that reflected on the deeper meaning of life, Cash has also made her mark as a writer with a collection of short stories called Bodies of Water, a children's book called Penelope Jane, A Fairy's Tale. Her essays and fiction have appeared in various collections and publications, including the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Time Magazine, the Oxford American, and New York Magazine. So we're very lucky today to get this wonderful opportunity to talk to Roseanne about her memoir composed. Roseanne, welcome to the Authentic Living Show, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on Authentic Living. Well, we're very lucky to have you. And, you know, what I want to do is sort of just jump right in here and talk about sort of the deeper underpinnings of your book. You say that when you sing, you perform for 6% of the audience who are poets. Well, first I want to say to you that you've performed for me and my loved ones many times because we relish in the deeper, more essential poignancy behind your lyrics and the music that carries the lyrics. You truly are a wonderful songwriter and singer. Thank you. And second, that's the stuff of your work that I want to talk about today. Mm -hmm. I know you get lots of interviews in which you're asked questions about your father and mother and stepmother, but today I want to talk about the things that gelled, that sank down into the marrow of your bones as you walked through your journey thus far. For those things seem to resonate at a deeper spiritual level. So some of the things that stood out for me as I read Composed, and uh, I'll be jumping all over the place here. But <laughs> okay. The first of these was that there is a simultaneity to your work, for you're writing about the past, and then you bring that memory immediately to a present-day connection, mm-hmm. and even sometimes a resolution. 
Mm-hmm. One example is that you said when you were 44, you freed both your current and your childhood selves. Can you say a little bit about how you think that happens or for us or happened for you? Well, in general, I, I don't... And when I was writing the book, I didn't really experience time as linear. You know, it seemed that time had themes and that it kept circling back to... Uh, different places that, you know, um, an issue would arise or an event would arise and it would have echoes in the past and future. And that's what most fascinated me is that there wasn't a linear sense of time. And I'm certainly not the first writer or artist to notice that. You know, there's a great quote about uh, from Thornton Wilder about time being a river that we step in and out of. So that was fascinating to me, and I certainly I didn't have any interest in writing a straight chronology. I wanted to write about how the past echoed in the present and vice versa. So what, the question you asked about the 44, I, there was a, a moment in the book when I talked about when I was a child and figuring out how old I would be at the millennium. And I thought, well, I'm going to be, um, let's see, how old was I? <laughs> 40, 45. Oh, that's right. So I figured out I was born in 55. I'm going to be 45 with the millennium. So years go by. I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be 45 with the millennium. You know, I grow up. And I realized I'm not going to be 45 at the millennium. I don't turn 45 until May. I'm going to be 44 at the millennium. And it was kind of, it was so shocking to me that this premise that I had built my life on, it felt like, was false. So I thought, well, what else is false? What other premises are false, and how can I go dismantle them, really? you know, and let some energy into this room? Mm-hmm. So I just took it as a metaphor. I mean, it's a kind of a funny thing, but it was a metaphor. Yeah, absolutely. And what it uh, sort of says is that you, you, you can't always know where... You're headed. You can't always know where you're going to land. That's, That's right. one of those things that we just don't want to think about much. We want to think we've got it all figured out. Exactly. I mean, that's the whole, uh, the bottom line of that is that we think we all have it all figured out, and really we're just on a boat going down to rapids. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, and looking for that V, huh? Yes. All right, another standout for me was the fact that you said uh, you always take your sorrows and your celebrations to the ocean, and that the ocean is like a higher power for you, and that mm-hmm. resonated with me in particular because I feel the same exact way. Mm-hmm. But you said you'd done many rituals of release in salt weather, and without revealing anything you don't wish to reveal, can you tell us a little bit more about that sacred space? Well, it is sacred to me. You know, there's uh, the ocean just feels like the source of all life and where everything will return and where everything came from. And... Uh, Again, a metaphor for God, whatever that is, and it's so vast, so much bigger than me, and, uh, you know, even just the pure ions, the negative ions of being by the ocean change me. Uh, I'm very sensitive to that. So many times I have gone down and put something in a rock, you know, like picked up a shell or a rock and thought about something I just didn't want to carry anymore, a burden. And I just imagine it going into the rock, and then I throw it out in the ocean as far as I can go. Well, sometimes they come back to me, (laughs) (laughs) but sometimes they stay out there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And that that whole idea of ritual is, is, 
helpful in that it helps us to remember what we've done mostly. There's yeah. No, ma- no more magic in it than the fact that we've we've really put a stamp on it and said, yeah, this was real for me. Yeah, I mean, I I grew up Catholic and I'm not Catholic anymore, but I I what I, the takeaway for me from Catholicism is how important ritual is. Mm-hmm. And um and I like it. It makes me it makes me feel safe and I think that it's a basic human need. Mm-hmm. I do too. I do too. There's been some actually some therapists who've written about how we don't have enough ritual and that our adolescents are suffering because there's not enough of that. So Right, I right. I I agree. Yeah. Okay, some of the powerful gems, I'm going to quote you just a little bit here. I may take some things out of context, but one of the things you talked about was the song September When It Comes that your father did. And you said you said about that that it was about what cannot be resolved but only endured. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so very profound because so many times we are just insisting that there's going to be a resolve to mm-hmm. just about everything. And what you clearly are sort of... Um, celebrating there in some form is is the recognition that uh, there are things that won't be resolved. There are so many things that aren't resolved that you just live with it. You know, it's like Rilke said that you have to love the questions, you know, not not have to have an answer for everything. There isn't an answer for everything. And I don't like this idea people talk about, about closure. I think it's kind of a an easy pop psychology, you know, catchphrase. And I just, it's not possible for great loss or grief for, um, you know, other things in life, the expectations that you have that were deep or dreams that you have that aren't fulfilled, you know. So you you endure the pain of that and you find a place in your heart for it. You know, it's maybe it's not torturous every day, but... It doesn't close. It doesn't resolve. It's it becomes part of you, or it's become part of me anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that you know, if there is any kind of resolve to some of those things, it, it is in the sort of alchemical changes that we go through as a result of having passed through that thing. Yeah, like initiations. Yeah, absolutely. A series of initiations, and I also don't believe that everything has happens for a reason. You know, sometimes terrible, terrible things happen, and someone will say, well, everything happens for a reason. I don't believe that. I think that we can ascribe meaning to whatever we want, and the things we ascribe meaning to forms our our life. And that's the way I feel, is that those things that have meaning to me define who I am. But not everything comes with its own meaning. Yeah, prepackaged. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, as a matter of fact, that was going to be my next quote. You said there's not meaning in everything, but one can ascribe meaning to anything. Right. Yeah, that's that's very powerful, and I think that's really true, that we're the ones that are assigning interpretations to our life and what it means and to the things that we surround ourselves with, etc. Right, but I don't think that that's um, less than yeah. it coming with its own meaning. You know, I mean, I think that that's where our power is and and our our grace and our uh, the poetry of what we assign meaning to in our lives. That's, it makes us who we are. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well said. I think that's really true. Because I think what you said is, is what we generally think. Well, if it's just me interpreting, well, that's just less than... But it is. Idea. It's everything. Yeah. It's everything. I mean, that, uh, I, I just, I, 
I feel that that's the unique part of life is what I assign meaning to, but you don't, and what you assign meaning to, but I don't, and then we come together and talk about it. I had a, a great, great friend, John Stewart, who was a wonderful songwriter, and he, um, he said this great thing to me. He said, God gives everyone different radio signals hoping they'll talk to each other. <laughs> that's great. I yeah. like that. Yeah, that's very true. Very true. And another uh, quote you had that goes right along with what we've said, uh, just, um, well, I'm going to take a moment to just say it and we'll talk about it after the break. Um, you said, with time, the unbearable becomes shocking, becomes sad, and finally becomes poignant. So we're going to talk about that right after the break. More with Roseanne Cash. Stay tuned. for a transforming world. Seventh Wave Network. The Institute of Noetic Sciences has been a pioneer and leading authority in the field of consciousness and healing for 38 years. We invite you to discover how you can transform your health or healing practice with ION's cutting-edge research into mind-body medicine and healing. For a limited time, you can receive valuable thank-you gifts when you support the Institute of Noetic Sciences research and educational programs. Just click the banner on this page to discover how consciousness research is transforming healthcare. What it comes down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart, but I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. Tired of the government squandering your tax dollars on bailouts and overpaid bureaucrats? On Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Mike Beitler and his guests explain why big government regulations are the problem and innovative businesses and free markets are the solution. Listen to Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Network. on a higher dimension. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And the Authentic Living Show is sponsored by the Institute of Noetic Sciences, dedicated to expanding science beyond conventional paradigms. Founded by Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell, IONS is a nonprofit research, education, and membership organization whose mission is supporting individual and collective transformation through consciousness research, educational outreach, and engaging in a global learning community in the realization of human potential. You can join that learning community at www.noetic.org. 
And we're talking today with Roseanne Cash just about the deeper meanings of her book, Composed, a memoir. Uh, and what we were talking about just before the break was one of your quotes that I really loved that said, with time the unbearable becomes shocking, becomes sad, and finally becomes poignant. And then you followed that with sometimes it doesn't even become poignant, which I loved. So uh, I want to talk just a little bit about that, that mm-hmm. sort of process, how that happens. Well, I, you know, when I was writing that, that's what it felt like. But And that there's, you know, I think I said there's probably something beyond poignant, but I haven't reached it yet. And, you know, there definitely is. Poignant is kind of a small, a small round feeling in the middle of yourself. And then beyond that, when the poignancy fades, there's there are certainly bittersweet memories, but... You know, I'm starting to understand my parents uh, not in relation to me anymore, just as people put on this earth with their own missions and their own lives. And, you know, and I, I guess I'm getting to a deeper understanding of that and, and more of an appreciation. You know, any anger that I had at my parents has, has, has faded at this point. Yeah, it, I do think it does tend to do that, especially after they pass. Yeah, yeah, they become bigger uh, and less, um, you know, there's just no more conflict. I, I always felt I could relate to the best parts of my parents now, that, and I'm doing all the talking. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, right. <laughs> I like that. That's good. That's good. And, I, I, you know, I think I've experienced that. Both of my parents have passed as well, and, I, uh, you know, the things that were resol- unresolved at the point of their death have really completely resolved in a sense, not in terms of closure, but in the sense that there's some shift inside me that says, okay, you just were who you were. Yeah, they were who they were. Um, they did the best they could. I mean, that's a very trite kind of cliche, but it tends to be true. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they brought their own baggage with them. Yep. And, you know, we may have stepped in the middle of that, but um, it doesn't make them bad people. Right, exactly. Exactly. And with regard to parenting, you actually said something else really wonderful that I appreciated so much about parenting in your book. I'm not even sure if you know how powerful it resonated with me. But you said... You only had one rule in your home, and that your daughters laughed at you about the rule, and I'll let you say what the rule was. But then you also said that your children became who they were born to be, and I wonder what the connection is between those two. I think there probably is a connection between those two. <laughs> I don't know. My one rule was no juice after 5 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And, you know, I wasn't much one for for rules. My mother was extremely strict. And I thought, well, I'm just not going to be strict with my kids. I'm going to have a democracy in my house instead of a dictatorship. And, you know, the truth is that doesn't work very well either. There's got to be a balance. Parenting is not a democracy in my mind. I was a bit too much of a friend and a bit too little of a parent. But even having said that, as my husband always says, they're born who they are. And there really is some truth with that. If you can manage not to screw them up too badly, they'll become who they came in mm-hmm. as. Mm-hmm. At least I found out, you know, and they're so different, so completely different. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. I, I, I have this feeling that if I time-traveled and I saw one of my kids on the street 
uh, I would know who they were. Huh. By their look, their walk, their act. Just what? something about them, something about their essence that's so familiar and beautiful uh, to me. Uh, yeah, absolutely. 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 Yeah, there's that deeper connection that's more than what they present on the outside, what we all present on the outside. Yes. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I, I you know, no, nobody parents perfectly. I certainly didn't parent perfectly, but um, I, I do think there's a whole lot to be said for our children becoming who they were born to be. And I think the largest part of what I do in therapy is helping people get back to who they were born to be. Right, to just strip away all of the kind of uh, the barnacles yep. <laughs> that you acquire exactly. just by living. Yes, exactly. Yeah, by attaching ourselves to other people's agendas for us. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, I think that it said a whole lot that even though you may look back and say, well, I was may- maybe too much of a friend and not enough of a parent, but it was it, it, there, the connection I found between I only had one rule and they grew up to who they, uh, who they were born to be was profound for me. I was mm. like, oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And one of the things that I saw in the book was sort of this evolution that you went through. There was always this poignant uh, recognition of something that you gained as a part of your experience. So, like you said, you lost your voice and simultaneously gave up some of your internal criticism. Yeah, um, I did lose my voice for two and a half years uh, when I was pregnant with my son. That was um, 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And um, it was scary, you know. I always had thought of myself as first and foremost as a as a writer and thought that uh, being a singer was just a, kind of an anecdotal accessory to to my life. Then I lost my voice, and I was shaken to the core. It really turned my self-esteem inside and out. And um, it, it went on so long that I, did, I was very afraid I wouldn't get my voice back. You know, two years into it, I thought, well, I may not ever be able to sing again. I got quite depressed. And um, I thought, you know, if I ever get it back, I'm not going to run those tapes of self-criticism that I run when I'm performing. I just kind of made a, a vow to myself about that. Well, I did get it back with a lot of work. And, you know, 80% I've kept to that vow to myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's fair. 80% is pretty good. Yeah. 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 But, I, you know, that's interesting that, that you made that connection. Um, you interpreted that that way or however you made that connection that said, um, I'm, I'm going to stop that because I want my voice and I appreciate my voice. Right. Uh, it, it, I felt almost that I was afraid to appreciate it, uh-huh. you know, that it was part, of, part and parcel that I had to, you know, judge and criticize constantly. But I, I do appreciate it now. And, you know, it's like uh, finding a friend in middle age that you didn't realize was your friend back in high school. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, and receiving that part of yourself, of course, is a gift for the rest of us because we get to enjoy all of your beautiful music. But it, it, uh, the fascinating thing about that is the crisis brought you to that awareness. Yeah. Well, that's kind of typical, isn't it? Is, uh, isn't it you know, that? you need a crisis to clear the air so you can see what's, what's what and what's real. Yeah. And uh, that's definitely happened for me a lot of times in my life. Yep, yep. And and it's evident throughout your book as it just keeps 
you just keep getting into these points of coalescence and mm-hmm. and uh, it's just good word. Yeah. Well, actually, it's one. Of, I don't even know if that's a real word, but <laughs> it is now. Um, <laughs> it is now. <laughs> that's right. Um, one of the things you said actually in the book about your, when your father's home burned down. Yeah. You said something within you coalesced about all the other fires you'd seen in your childhood, and you simultaneously released something. Yeah, I mean, that might sound a little too tidy that you could do it in that moment, but over time I did. But there was a sudden realization when I was walking through really still embers. I mean, it was, it, it had just stopped burning when I went to the house, and it was, it was a total loss. And it was, uh, I, you know, it was like a death. It was, We'd lost them, and then we lost this house where there were so many memories, and there had been a lot of fires. My father was a bit of a fire bug <laughs> when he was, you know, in the throes of his addiction. He was the only individual sued by the state of California for starting a forest fire, if you can believe that. And he started other fires, you know, from his tractor accidentally. It was all accidental. Um, but walking through the embers of that house, I thought, you know, there's been so many fires in my life. This is the last one. This is the last of the fires. I'm just going to let them all go. Wow. Wow. How powerful. Yeah, and I, I think that's, it, it says something about a crisis, again, that says, I mean, we, we dread our crises. We We try to build our lives so that we don't have them, and of course, we shouldn't build our lives so that we will have them, but right. we, 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 we try to avoid them and we dread them and we, you know, maybe even put up too much of a wall so that we can sort of keep that out. And even when they happen, we try not to notice that they've happened. And, and uh, you know, in that process, we may be missing some of that coalescence and some of that release. Well, I, I'm, you know, Andrea, I'm an eternal optimist, and I think that has helped me a lot. Um, that I, no matter how bad something is, and I'm not just talking about the loss of my parents or loss of friends, you know, I lost a baby. These losses were enormous, but there have been other ongoing things in my life that are private that have been very difficult. And I'm just optimistic. I, I always think things will turn out well. <laughs> Even when they don't, I keep thinking, well, it's going to turn out well. And I'm very good at reframing things to put um, positive spin on it. And I think that's been my saving grace, you know. I think it's kept me from chronic depression. And I don't know why that is. Um, My mother was not that way. Uh, My father, hard to tell if he was that way because he just kept his head down and kept going. But it's something that I had naturally, and I've, I've, I've used it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that makes a big difference, actually. There's been studies about people that um, are optimistic as opposed to pessimistic or opposed to sort of half-heartedly optimistic. But Mm -hmm. I do think that helps us look for the gift, and I really want to encourage people always to look for the gift in whatever happens because I I believe there's one tucked down in there somewhere. Yeah, um, you know, I I don't have a traditional belief in God. I'm not religious in a traditional sense, but I love um, physics, and particularly quantum mechanics, and I read lay books on quantum physics, and there's something about the poetry of the language of theoretical physics and uh, the 
way the vastness of the universe is described and the, the very mysterious ways that um, atoms and molecules interact that we can't, that these physicists, you know, the smartest people in the world can't understand yet and stand in awe of that these mysteries. That, to me, is, you know, what they call the unified field is, is God. God is the unified field. God is what ties all of this together, as well as being the source of creativity. And that in itself gives me hope and optimism that there is this incredible creative force that underlies these mysteries in the universe. And I feel, well, I'm one tiny part of that, and I, just, I, I want to kind of ride the storm of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I, I, you said that very, very well. That's exactly how I feel. And that um, unified field theory really does give us a sort of a, a base for that mystery, doesn't it? No, I think it's fear. You know, people want things to be small and manageable. And I have a friend who says that uh, it's, you know, people like to look at the ground with a flashlight rather than lift their heads to look at the vastness of the universe. Oh, wow. Yep, that's very well said. All right, well, we're going to be back in just a few more minutes with more from Roseanne Cash, so stay tuned. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. The Institute of Noetic Sciences has been a pioneer and leading authority in the field of consciousness and healing for 38 years. We invite you to discover how you can transform your health or healing practice with ION's cutting-edge research into mind-body medicine and healing. For a limited time, you can receive valuable thank-you gifts when you support the Institute of Noetic Sciences research and educational programs. Just click the banner on this page to discover how consciousness research is transforming healthcare. Want to change your life? The New York Open Center can help. We offer hundreds of ongoing classes, workshops, and professional trainings that heal the body, nurture the spirit, and awaken your true potential. Visit opencenter.org to check out our programs in holistic health, self-development, spiritual practices, creative arts, and much more. With our wellness services, bookstore, and cafe, we're an oasis in the heart of the city. And with Open Center Online Learning, you no longer have to be in New York to take classes. Visit opencenter.org today. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free. 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. 
Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back talking today with Roseanne Cash about her wonderful book, Composed, a memoir, talking about the poetic underpinnings of that book, the poignancy, the, uh, the word we just coined, coalescences. <laughs> I don't know how to fertilize it. And, uh, and uh, the way that we can sort of process through life in that way. And um, you were talking just before the break about that uh, unified field theory and how meaningful that was for you, and I think we stopped you. So if you had anything else to say about that, I wanted you to go ahead on with that. Well, um, I, you know, the older I get, the more comfortable I am with questions rather than having to have an answer for everything. And, and the, you know, something that's full of questions is um, physics and um even to the physicists, and I have a friend at, at Harvard, she's one of the top theoretical physicists at Harvard, uh, Lisa Randall, and, you know, she deigns to dumb down to talk to me <laughs> and try to <laughs> explain some of these things. But but it's so amazing to hear them stand in awe of how mysterious this is, that we we have just the tiniest particle of understanding about how this all works. It's so far beyond us. And that actually gives me a great deal of comfort. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not in control. I don't know how it works, but I'm here for the ride. Right. And I don't have to be in control, and I don't have to know how it works. Right. And I guess that's part of our what you talked about just before the break was fear. A part of our fear is that if we have to know, that if we don't know how it works or how we're going to figure it out, then something horrible is going to fall the, floor is going to fall out from underneath us or something. Well, sometimes it does. But, you know, I think that I'm, I'm better at that because I'm a songwriter and an artist, and I, I know that the tighter I try to get my hands around the song or the work or the performance, it, the worse it is. The, the more um, strained and airless it becomes, and that when I start to let go into that kind of free fall into a creative source, then it gets bigger, it gets more universal, even if the subject matter is very personal. You know, I, then I can feel the chemistry with the audience rather than just the self-consciousness of watching my own performance. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, to me it's just about expansion rather than um, choking. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, you just said a mouthful. I mean, that's one of the things that so many people are talking about with regard to meditation and with uh, Julia Cameron and the artist's way, and they're all similarly saying that we ha- there's a process of sort of letting go of the garbage before we can really just sort of get into the flow of, you called it universal energy. There's a personal, transpersonal, and universal all at once that sort of happens when you let go and and just let that process be what it is without trying to explain it. Yeah, and you know, I think that the, one of the hardest things for me is is understanding that it doesn't always work to my advantage. <laughs> but again, you can ascribe meaning to whatever you want, um, and I. You know, I, I've gotten more and more interested in, in quantum mechanics and um, the, the poetry of that. And, in fact, I'm writing, <laughs> a lot of the songs I'm writing now have science metaphors in them. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm not sure why, why I'm, I'm getting more and more drawn to this. I guess it is like a religion to look 
you know, like Rilke said, to live with the questions and let the questions um, fill you. Yeah. It's what I call leaning into the mystery. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, just, just you know, letting that be what it is and, and not leaning away from it, but leaning into it like it has its own um, gravity. Yeah. yeah, and its own energy and its own um, its own motives and its own trajectory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and in that way, um, you also said this, and I think this is true for me too, maybe true for everyone, that we sort of know things sometimes. Um, you said you always knew you were going to have brain surgery, which you did have mm-hmm. to have several years ago, a few years back. Right. And uh, and how we sort of kind of just know this stuff. I mean, there's stuff we just sort of know, and it sort of happens that way. Yeah, well, the brain surgery, I uh, when... When the doctor finally said to me, you need to have brain surgery, I had just changed neurologist and had been my misdiagnosed for a decade. And when the new neurologist, within two weeks of looking at my MRIs, he said, you, you need brain surgery, I felt something relax in me, like, ah, oh, yeah, of course I do. And, of course, it was incredibly frightening. At the same time, it felt incredibly right. Like, yep. this is... This is part of what's happening to me in, in this life, and it doesn't feel wrong. It doesn't feel like somebody else's life. It, it feels like my life. And, you know, and beyond that, the very kind of real-world stuff of, thank God I live in, uh, you know, a country with great hospitals in the 21st century and can have this done. Right, right, right. Well, I can't even imagine what that must have been like, but I, but that feeling that you described of it being right, frightening, but right. I mean, you use the words incredible, and what that says to me is that you had that incredible presence of yourself there. And uh, I think that is, is one of those awesome things that we all, we get occasionally. We get really grounded in ourselves and this connection with who we are, and we get our own information instantaneously. Well, I think that's grace, you know, and I've had moments of real grace in my life and and um, not just when something was going well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and there are people, poets in particular, who will say that they don't get the grace unless something's going bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that that brings up a whole other issue that I have struggled with mightily for my entire adult life, which is that do you need to suffer to create great art? Mm-hmm. And when I was younger, I tried to find models of artists who had idyllic lives, you know, and um, uh, Renoir had a kind of idyllic life, a beautiful house in the country, and a wife and children, you know, and I go, okay, Renoir, okay, he did it, and Monet, you know, with his gardens, the lily fields, oh, it must have been so wonderful, but there has to be something in an artist that, um, I mean, it's by definition more painful just to live in the world, mm-hmm. and, you know, you're dealing with the kind of, you're the tools of your own psyche to create with, and that's not always comfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But suffering doesn't have to be self-destruction. And, you know, I used to teach a songwriting class, and I would talk about this, about, you know, if you're going to go scuba diving in your own, the recesses of your own mind to get inspiration and to do this work, you damn well better have a good way to get back to the real world, because that's 
you don't have any bridges to come back, that's where self-destruction starts. I mean, we lose a lot of people, you know. We lose a lot of musicians, a lot of artists in general to self-destruction, suicide, to alcoholism, addiction, because because it's hard to go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very well said. Carl Jung talks about that, too, being able to walk that line between, you know, he did his own personal experiments about with his own psyche mm-hmm. and sort of tripped into that other world of the unconscious and had to be able to have a hook back to the real world so that he could um, bridge the gap between the two. And uh, you're right, that there is a... Um, there is. There is that place we go to that's down deep in there. It's and, dark, you know, and yeah. it's, you know, Persephone in the underworld. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and Pluto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, we know about Pluto in astrology. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that whole idea is that crisis can bring us information that's useful and, and it can give us a gift, or what you just said is it can also, uh, we can use that crisis as a jumping uh, off point to just dive into the abyss. Yeah, you know, there's some things happen in my life that I I, I, I clearly saw that it was a, there was a choice of how I was gonna what I, how I was gonna deal with it. You know, when I I lost a baby and I kind of saw this road opening up, saw myself. I said I could become a really bitter middle aged woman about this. Or I could do something else, and I didn't even know what the something else was because it was too painful. But, you know, what I took out of that and what I wrote in the memoir was that everybody, everybody has a tragedy in their life. And that it gave me compassion, you know. People act with such grace in the world, and they'll hold the door open for you, and they'll inquire about your life even if they're grieving something in their own life. There's such kindness out in the world. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, well, I I want to be kind. I want to not think that my suffering is the most important suffering in the world, but that I'm connected to other people through this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you've definitely been kind in your book because your book is filled with that kind of poignant... Uh, uh, what am I trying to say? It's the ability to have other people resonate with what you're saying mm. so powerfully, and you did a very good job of that. And one of the things, uh, we don't have much time before the break, but I want to I talk just a little bit um, probably after the break about uh, what you had to say about religion. You said one of the things in your book after 9-11, somebody said to you in the story you said uh, that they said, well, it was about religion, and you went, oh, yeah, of course, it was religion. Why? We so often act with inhumanity toward each other because of religion. Right. And um, and that whole idea, what that means to you in terms of what you've just said about science. That's mm-hmm. an interesting juxtaposition. So you want to start talking about that? And well, well yeah, I mean, I, I, almost all religions, I, I can't find this in Buddhism, but in other most other religions I find that there's a sense of exclusivity and arrogance about the right way, the right thing, the the only God, the one path, you know, and I just don't believe it. I don't believe that if there is a God that he or she is that small, that they would have a vast kind of multitude, different kinds of people, but only one way to connect with the source of all love and creativity. I just don't believe that. And then the extreme version of that, of course, is fundamentalism of any stripe, 
And, you know, and the extreme version of fundamentalism is that you fly airplanes into tall buildings. And it was shocking that day. I was in, in downtown Manhattan. I was standing in the street watching the towers, and my friend was standing next to me. We were crying, and she said, all this in the name of God. And it just chilled me. It went through me, and I thought, of course, of course. This is the this is the hammer people use to to destroy each other is that they have the one true God. So, you know, I'm not an enormous fan of religion. Mm-hmm. Um and I like ritual, like I said, you know, sometimes I take my kids to the Episcopal church for Easter or Christmas and I love that and but religion in general I think has done more harm than good. Mhm. Yeah, I agree with that, and I and I think that is such a different um, story that religion tells than that that's told by spirituality. Yeah, I would agree with that too. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, spirituality is very individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we get to explore all the options there with spirituality, and that's what's so beautiful about what you said with regard to science and and yeah. uh, physics and uh, the unified field theory. So we get to just kind of look around at all the questions we could ask and sit with those and be with that. So that's what spirituality says. It's more exciting that way, I find. <laughs> oh, yeah, much more. All right, well, we'll be back in just a few more minutes with more from Roseanne, so stay tuned. for a transforming world. Seventh Wave Network. The Institute of Noetic Sciences has been a pioneer and leading authority in the field of consciousness and healing for 38 years. We invite you to discover how you can transform your health or healing practice with ION's cutting-edge research into mind-body medicine and healing. For a limited time, you can receive valuable thank-you gifts when you support the Institute of Noetic Sciences research and educational programs. Just click the banner on this page to discover how consciousness research is transforming healthcare. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. to the threshold of a dream and beyond. 7th Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back for our final segment with Roseanne Cash, Sad But True. 
uh, and we're going to be talking. We've been talking about the whole idea of spirituality as it as it's different from religion, and we've been talking about um, the whole uh, quantum physics um, theories that go uh, that are spinning around right now and uh, teaching us, learning from us, all of that. Um, and we, I wanted to just talk a little bit more about what you said in the book about um, some of those deep meaningful experiences that you had one of those that you kept i noticed as kept you kept sort of hitting on little things that brought up the concept of humility and one of the things you said was the first crisis of humility came in the form of a circus tent performance <laughs> <laughs> well that was, I, that was in the very beginning of my career and um i was i made my first record in germany in 1978 and i was very young and um, very inexperienced. I had good instincts about music, but not a clue how to execute them. And the, one of the, I put out this record just in Europe, and one of the first marketing events that was lined up for me was uh, to perform in a circus tent. And they said, you know, oh, it's Radio Luxembourg, it's thousands of people, 12 noon on a weekday. And I thought, how are they going to get thousands of people at 12 noon on a weekday in the circus tent 90 miles from Munich? Um, and I got there, and, you know, I was correct. <laughs> it was more like 90 people and um, real animals milling around the circus tent. So I, I was frozen. I was paralyzed when I got out of the car and saw this. And they said, okay, you will go to the center ring and you will lip sync your song. I said, but it's it's radio. Why do you want me to lip sync? Why why do you even have me here? Just play the record. And they said, no, no, it's for the audience. So, you know, I went out and very glumly, with great humiliation, lip synced my song, and then all 90 people rushed the stage afterwards. Wow. <laughs> it was surreal. It was straight out of a dolly painting. <laughs> but, you know, humility, yeah. You know, and then 20 years later, after great success, you know, I'm back and playing in a bar in Oslo to 12 people. It's, those moments have come throughout my life, and they're good reminders. Yeah, and they also, you know, I, talk, I think about it in terms of the sort of the blasphemies of the audience not paying attention to the sacred, but, not the, you know, but it, yeah, but at the same time, those things bring us back to the mystery, don't they? They just kind of just say, well, okay, this is well, what it is. Well, they bring me back to the work. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, it, is it just worth it just for the work? The answer has always been yes. Yeah. You know, if I'm not successful, if, uh, if I am successful, if I'm not, if it's a Four Seasons or if it's a, you know, Super 8, um, is it worth it for the work? Yes, it's always worth it. Yep, and that's, that's the, the testament of an authentic self, I think, that, that we are doing what we do because we love doing what we do. That's right, and I've always felt that, that the redemption for me is in work. Mm-hmm. And there... You know, there is no secret. There is no doing it with your mind or visualization. It's about hard work to me. And if you just keep showing up, then something happens. And that's I talk about that in my book, too. I just kept showing up for work, and I got better at it. Yep. Yep. You build confidence, and you build a sort of a... A A mastery at some point, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mastery is the right word. Absolutely. Yeah, and one of the things that you talked about that you've talked about this, I've been to a couple of your um, uh, 
uh, a, a local and and um, not so local readings that you do of the of composed as well. And, oh, you have. Which oh, ones yes. did you come to? To the one in Georgia at the book festival. Oh, um, right. And the one in Birmingham at the Hoover Library. Oh, I loved the Hoover Library. That was that was wonderful. Yes, it was. You were wonderful there. And um, one of the things that you concentrated on there, as well as in the book, was uh, the statement that you made in, as a child. And again, in your memoir as an adult, that a lonely road is a bodyguard. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what you mean by that statement? Alone? Well, that was a metaphor I wrote as a child in uh, seventh grade, and uh, you know, it was really the first um, assignment that nuns had given me that I truly enjoyed of writing metaphors and similes. It really opened my mind. I think that that was the moment I knew I was a writer. Is, is is writing those metaphors and similes. Well, my mother saved those those assignments, those English papers, and she sent them to me when I was, you know, in my 30s. And I saw that and I thought, oh, my God, how did that little girl understand that? And I took that line and put it in a song I wrote, Sleeping in Paris. And... Um, you know, then I I put it in the book, too. And it, it turns out to me that all of the travel I've done for my work and the performances and the empty halls and the full halls, that all of that has been in some ways a lonely road, but it has protected me from a life that wasn't naturally my own life. I, I've led my natural life on this lonely road that in another way, is deeply satisfying and rich. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, and you just said again what you said earlier about um, children growing up to be who they were born to be. Right. Uh, exactly. Because obviously at se- in the seventh grade you already knew. Well, I had an inkling that. anyway. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, Roseanne, thank you so much for being on the show today. I've loved talking to you, and I, and, and I wish you the best of luck in continuing with your work because the world needs you. Well, thank you, Andrea. It was my pleasure to be on the show. Really interesting conversation. I appreciate it. Oh, me too, me too. And next week we're going to have a special encore interview with Dr. Christian Northrup about her newly revised edition of Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom, Creating Physical and Emotional Health and Healing. So you don't want to miss that. And remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time here on the 7th Wave Network. We'll talk again next week.